any cannabis events in early 2014 in Colorado, you may have very well attended an event put on by Jane West. Made infamous by local news channels by her very open use of cannabis as a woman and mother, she was chosen by the spotlight to represent women in the cannabis industry. We speak with Jane about building up Women Grow into a national organization, how she addressed cannabis with her kids, product design with Jane West, and now equity crowdfunding as a viable option for cannabis startups. Let's step into the green room. Hello, today we're talking with Jane West, a cannabis activist and the CEO and founder of cannabis cannabis lifestyle brand, Jane West. Um, Thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no, this is great. I'm I'm excited to talk to you and I know you have a little bit of a, a history. So I would love to kind of talk about how you got into the cannabis industry and kind of like your early days of, of cannabis. Yes, definitely. Um, so prior to 2013, I was not um, involved in the cannabis sector or in the legalization movement at all. Um, I was a third in 2013 as a 38-year-old mother of two living in Denver, Colorado, and the voters of Colorado passed legislation to legalize cannabis for adult use. And it was at that time that, um, you know, I started getting pretty excited about the reality of legal cannabis and what that would mean, Um, mainly because I love consuming cannabis in every form. Uh, Smoking flower is my favorite, um, but now with the edibles being so advanced and tailored, you know, I also enjoy edibles. Um, I use cannabis topicals every day. Um, And so, yeah, when it became clear that any adult could go into a dispensary and without, you know, needing to involve their doctor or their insurance, um, just buy cannabis, I thought that there would be a whole new generation of consumer that was born, which is exactly what happened and what's still happening every single day in all of these states as more and more normalization occurs. Um, My history is more in producing events, uh, mainly for nonprofits. And so um, I wanted to produce a cannabis-friendly event in Denver, Colorado, Um, something that really was tailored to the type of Friday night I wanted to have. I had attended a few cannabis events, um, conferences, things put on by High Tide um, before then, and it really, High high Times, and um, it really just wasn't for me, it wasn't my type of event, um, an audience. And so what I did was put together a, uh, a series of events, one each month for 2014. So on January 1st, adult use happened and there were about 20 or 30 stores in my area that opened their doors that day. And it was the beginning. And so, uh, my first event was called the end of prohibition in February. We had a threesome with Mary Jane. All the events were, um, at a private art gallery showcasing local artists. We also had chefs there preparing food that matched the whole theme of the event, Um, live music. um, It was great. It was about 125 people at each party and they took off. Um, It was pretty amazing. Um, One of the first decisions I had to make in 
the way we communicated with our guests and the way we advertised the events was whether or not I would allow photographs to be taken. Um, and this became a pretty important point because I was trying to normalize cannabis consumption to show the world that there, you know, cannabis is for everyone. And there are a lot of demographics that are not being represented by the current cannabis culture. Um, at the same time, as soon as I started publishing that like photographs would be taken press would be welcome this because I wanted to like have those images you know honestly when I first launched the the events for the first two months articles about them were all partnered with a few pictures of like a kind of large white guy with a bong in his lap sitting on the Capitol steps on 420 like as if that's like what a cannabis event always looks right and then then if you read the article you'd be like wait that's not what best is so it was important to me to capture this new demo as it started to come out of the closet um but i did lose a lot of ticket sales for that you know many customers would reach out and say i would love to come to this event this is exactly what i want but i'm not comfortable having my image captured and, you know, being at this event at this time, this is in 2014. Yeah. So, um, so we hosted the events and, um, I had, I, like I said, I had lots of media and press, the UK telegraph did like a three minute video piece. that was basically a commercial. Um, CNBC came and took a lot of footage that I had assumed they would use in like B roll because in, at that time in January of 2014, there was basically a news crew on every corner in front of one of these dispensaries from Al Jazeera to CNN to local news to bloggers. Oh, wow. And, I mean, it was, I mean, it was the first, it was the real thing. And oh. about the same time as when Washington legalized, but they went about it in such a different manner that there just wasn't like grows and things to go take pictures of at the time. But once you've taken a picture of a grow, once you've been to the dispensary, there's not much else to like capture. And so news of this party where everyone's going to be smoking pot and there'll be old ladies there and young people there and every, you know, um, it spread. So we got a lot of press um, and that drove ticket sales to the future events. Um, and then in February of 2014, just like basically 30 days after I had even started trying to host events. Um, one of the pieces came out, uh, marijuana in America with Harry Smith who had interviewed me, but he interviewed dozens and dozens of people I know. And for one short 47 minute special, um, and I ended up being a pretty significant component of that, of that, uh, piece. It was a seven minute piece about me, the fact that I'm a mom and I use cannabis and I, I'm, I'm like unashamed of it. And then I'm also trying to start these events, um, that welcome new customers into the cannabis space. And so uh, the very next day I was asked to resign from my job because of this one event. And that is definitely something that I did not think was going to happen at all. I mean, I was just hosting the events. Additionally, I made it a point to never consume on camera dirt for those mainstream. Yeah. I mean, I love my job. I, I, you know, I have a master's degree in social work. I, 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 it was my dream job. I've been there for eight years. I ran the Western division of the company. And, um, and so, and I kind of like nudged my boss that I was like doing this fun little thing, but you know, for that position, um, like I produced events for both of Obama's inaugurations for 10,000 students, like having one party on a Friday night for a hundred people, that was fun for me to do. Right. Um, so yes. So that became a pretty big news story. The fact that you could, this woman 
just wanted to produce weed friendly events. She's not a grower. She's not a licensee. She's not, you know, breaking the law. And she got fired from her job. What, what would it take for your employers to fire you? In fact, it was like on the ticker of the, of the news building downtown. Um, and so, um, so I dove in as much as I could. It was a pretty like traumatic time for me. I've never been like fired from anything in my life. And I was very comfortable in my position. I love my job. Um, and so I formed a partnership with the Colorado Symphony Orchestra to turn the summer events into fundraisers for them. One of the reasons was because um, we were starting to get some like pushback and feelers from the government saying that like maybe these events aren't exactly legal but they they, there wasn't exactly a clear law that I was breaking we were just I was not distributing cannabis people brought their own um and you know to my march event um there were some a few police officers showed up at the very beginning looked around asked me some questions I showed them my insurance I showed them the security team I showed them like everything we needed they were like cool this is great thanks they left great so, um, I formed a partnership with the college, but it was, it was important that we kept trying to follow the law as much as possible. And that we kept pushing the envelope for social use. And so, um, at that point we formed a partnership with the Colorado Symphony Orchestra and all the summer events turned into fundraisers for the symphony. And that helped alleviate one concern I had, which was a clause in amendment 64 in Colorado that I could not profit from the consumption of cannabis. And so by making them fundraisers, the local arts, then we kind of like transcended that it was more of a fundraiser. Right. Um, and so we felt like we were like in the clear and, you know, from the, the news about the, the partnership with the orchestra spread, spread far and wide. We were on the cover of the New York Times art section talking about bongs and listening to classical music and like really the, the color symphony really wanted to bring in a new audience, their audience is quite old <laughs> and they started a Beethoven and Bruce series that brought in a whole new audience and every take, almost every single ticket sold to my classically cannabis events, um, were brand new user, con- brand new audience for the Colorado Symphony. They were brand new customers registering on the site. So they were getting done what they wanted to get done. Um, and we felt, I felt like I was in a pretty good place. I was starting to form partnerships with some of um, the bigger cannabis brands in Colorado to like produce their booths at high times and, you know, just try to my best to leverage what I built to start a real event planning business in cannabis. Um, and so the more notoriety that I got, the more I became on the radar of government officials. And on Easter Sunday, 420, 2014, seven years ago this week. I was hosting a wake and bacon brunch at a small female owned bakery and an eight person SWAT team showed up. Um, they put an end to the event. They ticketed every single person, every, not the attendees, but everyone involved in it. So like the bakery license owner got some type of fine. My security guard got a fine. They were trying to just make it as punitive as possible. And I ended up with criminal misdemeanor charges, which meant that I was on probation. Um, that also was another whole new story that like, this is all happening. Like this woman that then she started the events, remember the events? Oh my God. And then she got fired. Oh my God. And then she formed the partnership with the symphony. And then the SWAT team came and shut her down. And now she's a criminal. Um, the city's goal is to make a um, misdemeanor or felon, have us left with misdemeanor or felony charges so that we'd be on probation and they would be able to just like do whatever they want. Right. Yeah. If they catch us at another event. And so, so, um, 
So that, and that was just three months in, like my first time was in January of 24th. And this is now April 20th. And now the events are clearly illegal as well. Um, That moment did a lot of things for me. Like up till that point, I had really gotten notoriety. And in fact, was on the five o'clock evening news, national news with Brian Williams, just for simply saying, I'm a mom and I use marijuana and that's okay. Like that was apparently that newsworthy at the time. Right. Um, but really we were trying to like change the conversation around it. Um, and so, but, but, but being criminalized for it and having to go to, um, the courtroom. So like so many times it was there five, six, um, five or six different occasions until the whole thing was settled. Um, really taught me a lot more about like the war on drugs and how it is really just a war on people. I was always the only white woman in those courtrooms on those days, you know, watching all these other cases of, you know, with black and brown people coming up, you know, without attorneys, without representation, quite on. And I would, you'd hear what the crimes were for. And quite honestly, they all seemed pretty petty uh, that we're all sitting here for this, you know, so um, that really helped me start to frame my my approach and my conversation and how about how much that I was wasn't just starting a business I was joining a revolution mm-hmm. and there were important you know historical um, aspects to the war on drugs that I needed to learn about so that I could be as articulate as possible with the platform that I had very quickly found myself on top of. Right. Um, so. Yeah. So basically we're, yeah, we're, we're at the summer of 2014 and, uh, what am I going to do now? Like I, you know, my, the, my, the events were no longer economic, economically viable. Um, I was on probation. Um, but what had happened with all those news stories is that women, um, people, especially women all over the world were reaching out to me and asking me, how can I get in the cannabis industry? I want to work for you. I'm going to start to grow. I want to get a license. I want you to connect me. Like, like just comment like constant every new news article because there was there was really absolutely nothing for women at that time and in a lot of ways in a lot of states there still is not there still is not enough opportunities um welcoming women into the cannabis sector um and so um and i and i saw that to be true myself like informing my business i attended you know at that time there were just mostly trade group events and those were all business owners so if you're not a business owner yet how do you start to get involved? Right. Um, so that was what led me and motivated me to found women grow. Um, and so I kind of went back to my, uh, social work roots. I'm, you know, a good organizer of people. Um, and I used to run a program that happened simultaneously in multiple States on the same week and manage teams of people. And so that's basically the premise behind women grow. Um, I tried to help a few different women, um, one in Pennsylvania, one in Illinois, one in California to start their businesses. And what I learned very quickly was that you, I can't help them at all. Like I have no idea what the regulations are. I don't know how, like, <laughs> you know, they're like, I want to make this brownie that my grandmother made, but infuse it. And I'm like, I don't know if you can do that or how you can do that. Or if can you do it in a commissary kitchen? Do you need your own kitchen? Like, so many, I, I was so motivated to assist, but I but learned you had no answers, <laughs> no answers. Yeah. That's hard. So, yes. So, um, but the women in Colorado, you know, 
at, the, at that time and still to this day, I believe that Colorado is the most um, open free market cannabis economy in the country. Um, there are thousands of cultivators here and there are hundreds of dispensaries owned whether some are owned by like a 24 store chain and some are just singles or couple or like two or three stores in a local area Mm -hmm. um most of them are owned by by coloradans who live here who started a retail business in their community to sell cannabis or who started you know a cultivation in their um, in their like close proximity to grow cannabis for their neighbors, for their community, for their stores. Um, and, you know, at the time in 2014, I looked around and my female colleagues who were CEOs of the companies they owned, uh, they owned a granola company, one from a testing lab, one of a dispensary, one of a cultivation, one, you know, and I, I was like, oh my God, look at all this opportunity. Like I, I want, you know, I'm, I was so concerned. And, and I said this later in the year when Nightline came to feature um, my, one of my symphony events I said, you know, I I just am really worried that women, that outdated, uneducated stereotypes about cannabis are going to prevent women from entering the industry at exactly the time that they should. Because what I was seeing were these thriving businesses. And I naively thought that, well, this, it's just going to get better from here. Like, Like, oh my gosh, like as more states legalize, like this must be the most restrictive live like limited thing. We're the first ones trying it. We're the first ones dipping our toes into it. Right. Um, and that was part of the fuel, the fuel, the hope and the excitement and every little win of the female businesses in Colorado that I was familiar with at the time, um, would fuel my motivation to keep building women grow because I could, I do believe very much and you have to see it to be it. And, um, I wanted more women all over the country to know you can be a scientist, you can be an extractor, you can be a grower, you can be a salesperson, you can own a right. like the opportunities are endless, come. And that was the point of women grow. Like we had these, so um, to go full circle, I tried to help these, these different women. I, I realized very quickly that what really matters is your local connections. You need to know who your representative is, who, you know, who your customer is what you can sell them and how. Um, and so the best thing you can do is get connected on a local level with other women and men, who, you know, who are looking to get in the cannabis sector and get connected. Um, back then it wasn't actually as predatory as now today. I feel like there are more people making money off of people trying to make money in the cannabis industry than there are people making money on cannabis. Um, and back in 2014, I was just trying to make sure that everyone like, saw the opportunities that I believed existed. Um, so we, I launched women grow in the first year. I actually, at the time I did, I was not the CEO and I didn't necessarily see myself as a CEO. Um, I, I founded the company. I created all the marketing materials, the logo, um, the premise and the system behind it. Like how do we do women grow networking events? Okay. We do them on the first Thursday of every month. You pick a theme based on your local market you know, you, like, here's the advertising guide. Here's how you get your name out there. Let's do this. Let's replicate this. Let's learn each month from what happened and let's do it again. And let's do it bigger. And so, um, within my first year, we had women grow network events in 44 different cities. 
Um, we had a national conference, um, a small first national conference that welcomed 125 women um, that were all mostly C-level or, or business owners um, to kind of like roundtable about like, hey, how are we going to do this? What are we going to yeah. do to really affect change here? And then since then, you know, we've had four other national conferences that have welcomed, welcomed hundreds of women, including a big one we did down at the Opera House, the historic Opera House in Denver, which was awesome. Um, so I spent my first year building Women Grow, applying my uh, master's degree in social work to like organizing that community. And um, I was the national events director. So I founded it as a national events director. And then I found all the staff to go around for the team. Um, by the second year, I started looking at, at how I was going to leave. Like I knew, I knew I wanted it to happen and I knew it had to be, but like running a women's networking group was not what I like, how, like, how did I end up here? You know, 100% job of that's all you're doing all the time. Right. You know? Right. And, and honestly, like it, it's in a lot of ways, it wasn't even necessarily the best fit for, for like my work style. I'm an extremely independent worker. Um, and so, um, and so I started building up the next generation I created, uh, with Hiller PC out of New York, like some of the most incredible legal minds in cannabis. They, they were the ones that got closest to like changing laws at the Supreme court, um, with a heartbreaking decision earlier this year. Um, but, um, they helped me form the like LLC agreement and background document so that I could leave the company, but that it would live on without me because the number one thing that about women grow was like the days I'd be like, no, I'm not, do- this is, I'm not doing this anymore. There'd be two more of the most incredibly promising, insanely motivated, wildly talented women that would walk through the door or be on the other phone to me. And I just couldn't stop. Like, I have like, we have to channel this energy and, and because they saw a future for women grow that was even better than what I could picture, you know? And so, um, and then additionally, the other thing that happened, um, during my time at women grow that has, will always of course stick with me is that, you know, I entered in the cannabis sector because I'm a recreational user and I wasn't seeing my demographic being represented by the cannabis community. And so I, but I, I love smoking pot and I wanted it to be more normal, you know? And so, and I, and then at the same time, I wanted women to own those businesses and I wanted to own eventually own my own business in the space. Um, but by doing so, what happened was these women, and especially as we did these lightning round talks for the women grow conferences where like everyone pitched us, on what they would speak on. And then, you know, we picked all the different speakers. Everybody got seven minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the number of topics and what was out there and the number of mothers who are canna moms who are fighting for, to have the medicine they need for their children and the women who are veterans and women who want to talk about PTSD and women who want to talk about cannabis for menopause and for like specific female health issues. And like, it does, it didn't end the, the topics, the community, the, 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 the Venn diagram of people who all came together and wanted to talk about this and share what they knew and were so passionate and motivated to make cannabis legal um, was another like thing that kept me motivated. And just like every week there'd be a new thing that would open my eyes about um, the power of this plant and how important it is that we have access to grow it ourselves and we have access to buy it from whomever we want to in our communities. Um, And so, so that was the, that was the thing I know I taught, you know, 
different communities, different things in building women grow, but I learned far more. And, um, that like baptism by fire of like all the ways and all the people that could possibly be motivated to contact me at the other end of that, like women grow phone number, which was my phone number for like two years straight. (laughs) You have to, like, you have to pick a phone number. You can't get like, you know, people like get a Google number. Why, why, why are we getting a Google number? So someone can call number, no one answers. Why would we do that? Right. Um, so yeah. So I ended up you know, two years into cannabis by July, 2016, I created a LLC and operating agreement that grandmothered me out of the company and, um, would never actually leave like one specific person in charge for any extended period of time. And also I divested, which is not a word used around here much. Um, my interest in the company into a new entity. So now it's cause I really want it to be employee owned. Like that has to be the motivation. This is not like a huge revenue generating and, you know, endeavor. And if it became a revenue generating, I always, I believed in my heart that if it became a huge revenue generating endeavor, then there'd be something not quite right. Like if they were like, if you're making that yeah, much money, right, right. Get connected, then like it's the not balance is uh, off a little bit. Yeah. Like yeah. where, what are you doing? So, um, yeah, so I dive that's my interest. Uh, women grows now 80% black female owned. Um, and Dr. Shonda Masias, um, is the CEO. Um, Gia is the president. She's in New York city. Um, right now, most of their events are virtual due to COVID. Um, but they're getting ready for a pretty big comeback. And I'm excited for that since we we do, we, our biggest chapters, um, we're in Arizona and California and New York. <laughs> and so um, we have like such a deep uh, root and network in New York. I'm excited. I'm so excited about the law in New York. I'm so grateful that finally some huge significant state that really matters passed legalization that appears to be um, equitable and then also allows for home grow. Like, that's amazing. That's great. We want people pointing to that and saying, I want that. Why don't I have that? Right. Um, so yeah, so I, I'm very hopeful for the future of women grow. Um, my events company edible events does still does not exist, but I do see, you know, now finally also there's social use initiatives that are going into place. And I think, um, I can see a lot of different things in the future. I pictured like a, um, if, if we can get delivery right and just get like a food truck of everything everyone ordered that arrives in one spot, right when the party kicks off, like something along those lines. That'd be, yeah. that'd be cool. Yeah, right? I mean, you all place the order and it makes sense all along the chain without huge sponsorship dollars or a bunch of wasted money. Like here's all of our new products. These are what we're featuring for the event. What do you like to order? Oh, give me your card or however that part works, right? Right, right, right. Right. And so, um, and I'm excited. There's there's groups like Vlad, um, a happy monkey out of New York. There's a group Hempton Heights in Oklahoma. There's an, a B&B in California that just opened. Um, that it seems like people really are figuring out the nitty gritty because as sexy as cannabis events sound and are, you need insurance. Right. If- you've got your act together and you need to be able to place ticket sales on a merchant services page and you know all these little details yeah yeah those little details that legitimize uh the business that the that so 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 many people want to be in that was the number one group that reached out to me in 2014 were um restaurateurs 
and people who are already in the um, hospitality industry in some way who simply were trying to figure out how to get out and let people smoke pot at their place. So I know that that demand's out there. And I think especially these empty, a combination of like tax dollars through the sale of cannabis. And like, now we're trying to see that, like, where else are you making this much money out of something? Everybody's going to go buy a bunch of, and then two weeks later, buy more. Okay. Mm -hmm. That isn't that terrible for the environment. I mean, a lot of the ways that MSOs are growing is pretty terrible for the environment, but like, you know, we'll get outdoor grow there eventually, but, um, you know, there's just only so many ways that you can bring in that many that tax dollars into your community. And so if we find ways to license these on-site consumption centers as well for, you know, taxable licensing or licensing fees, that's just another revenue stream for the government and a completely viable, reasonable way to fill up these restaurants and storefronts that are all empty mm-hmm. due to COVID. Yeah. Um, it's so logical. It, it it's mind boggling. And, um, hopefully we have groups looking at, you know, here in Colorado, we have seven years now of public health data about what happens when you can drive less than 10 minutes from homes anywhere and buy weed. And, um, you know, the sky is not falling. The roads are just as safe as they were before teen use. In fact, teen use of overall listed substances is down in the state. Um, so hopefully, you know, with this proven public health data, the need for more tax revenue in a state by state and all these empty storefronts and motivated restaurateurs and, and, and restaurant employees who want something new to have blossom, Mm -hmm. you know, in the wake of what COVID did to so many of those communities. um, I'm hoping that really, it will truly be the roaring twenties. And, um, and by the end of this decade, the, the country is a, as, as a whole, will have a very different opinion about cannabis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we were talking the other day about um, the impact of COVID on the whole movement, everything, right? It's like it becoming essential. And, um, mm-hmm. and now, I mean, what you're saying is finding ways to like get it into stores, get it in the storefronts. I think the pandemic definitely created, um, I mean, I think, I think there's a few things, but I think it created a lot of opportunity. There's always going to be challenges, mm-hmm. but I think it yeah. does expedite things a lot further. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. I want to, I want to go back a little bit to, uh, you were talking about women grow and all the different types of people. And on your blog, I was uh, reading about, um, some of the things you were talking about parenting and, um, you know, being a mom, having kids and smoking cannabis. Um, and you, you know, are one step further, you work in cannabis. How mm-hmm. have you had those conversations with your kids of, you know, this is what I do. Do they have questions? Like, I think, um, you know, the sensitivity of talking about cannabis is really interesting I, between each other, but then now if we're going to be introducing it, you know, in the family, how have you approached that? If you have. Yeah. I mean, definitely. I mean, like, uh, well, you know, my story now where before I, you know, was applying my master's degree in social work for like nonprofits. And then all of a sudden, yeah, like I, I'm like on television for smoking pot. Like that was very sudden. They were, and at the time they were um five and eight mm-hmm. and, um, and, and I'm pretty young. 
Um, you know, for me personally, I, I think that we just need to be honest about substance use as a whole in this country. Um, and, and, and what we're, we're, I mean, Americans are all on something, whether, you know, it's sugar or coffee or cat or cannabis or alcohol, like whatever, like your, you know, drug of choices or like the wide variety of prescription medications that, um, we're being sold every day. Like one of the things I learned while being in the cannabis space is that America and Brazil are the only two countries in the world that allow pharmaceutical companies to advertise to people. Like in every other country, there's not all the lyric, like the only way you find out about a drug is if your doctor brings it up, not asking your doctor about this drug you heard about on the radio. I didn't know that. And, and like, um, so yeah, going back to the topic, I, my, my kids know everything. I mean, there's this bong on my desk. I made it. It's, you know, and then also we're like working on different, but I'm like trying to figure out different cleaners. There's like, um, they absolutely know I consume cannabis. Um, and, uh, my off, I mean, I have a big door that leads outside to my office. So if it's open, <laughs> it's usually like, um, I mean, there's definitely a scent of it. They say that they're like, they say, they say they can smell it, but I don't know. Um, I just don't, to me, it is really just as normal as, as drinking a beer. And, um, I think that we need to talk to our kids about all substances, especially, you know, illicit drugs, many of which I believe should be regulated. Um, The the safety comes from the, the, the lack of safety comes from the lack of regulation and lack of understanding about these different substances. And really the most concerning thing and when people start to truly get into trouble is with multi-substance use, um, where there it's two different ones, usually alcohol plus something else combined. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm fair. I'm super open with my kids about it. They can go on YouTube and find tons of videos of me smoking pot if they want to, they don't seem to want to at all. Um, and I just like, I really feel like I'm taking one for the team because I can, like I, I, I talk to there, I'm still surprised and I shouldn't be. It's something about this naive I have, but like women contact me still from all over the world. who are like, when I saw you and you were smoking and you have these two kids and you're just like, you're just there and you're smoking. Like I, they're like, I wish I could do that. I can only do it when I go to my sister's and then I go to my sister's and I have to wash my hands and my, like, they're so ashamed of it. Um, and that travels up too. I have a handful of women in my network who are crushing their jobs in the cannabis industry. And their family still thinks they work at like a marketing firm selling like kombucha or something. Like they don't even feel comfortable telling their families about it. You know, there's, there's so many layers of this. And my hope is that like, again, like societal thought about even gay marriage as a comp, you know, it, it changed, changed the way people think. And within a few generations, when something is accepted and when something is, you know, especially when something is, um, when it was so logically placed in our society to begin with, like what, like this doesn't make sense. Cannabis is a schedule one drug, you know, and that's where that comes back to your original conversation about like, 
I, if I followed the government's recommendation about talking to my kids about the dangerousness of different drugs based on the schedules, then, you know, that I would be completely misinforming them, Yeah, right. you know? And so, um, yeah, so I know, and I'm from Wisconsin and, um, and every time still, when I go back there, there's just, there's people that so wholeheartedly believe like, oh, that'll never happen here. And, and that always drops drops my jaw. I'm like, oh no, no, it's going to happen everywhere. Maybe, maybe there's going to be like a few weird dry counties somewhere, but you know, there's always those, right? Yeah. Um, I think a lot of that societal change will come when trusted individuals within the community, um, take their fear of talking about it. Like, um, so many, like with my, with me having my master's degree in social work, you know, so much of my network and a lot of professional friends of mine, like now I you know, graduated almost, I graduated 15 years ago. So most of them are like, you know, pretty advanced in the careers that they're doing. Right. And it'd be, you're, you'd be amazed at how many of them somehow cannabis uh, and definitely more written marijuana, affects what they're doing, whether they work in the, um, you know, the, the child welfare system or whether, you know, what, it, there's so many different, um, perfect, like, uh, specializations within social work where you have to deal with the outdated, uneducated laws that are preventing people with drug tests with monthly this and monthly that, and they can't. And so then this parent has no option, but they're not testing for alcohol in their system. And most many of these cases also. So, you know, um, but so many of my colleagues in that realm, and then also in the medical realm, because the the job that um, I was doing previously worked fairly closely with doctors. Um, They're not comfortable yet. They're not comfortable saying yet, like, whoa, I think this is okay. And like the social workers aren't, you know, they're fighting for their clients that are trying to work in this crazy system. And so speaking out that like, I think it's actually okay that, you know, my, my foster mom is smokes pot. She's got like 12 kids in the house and she's a great foster mom and, you know, little things like this. Right. Totally. Um, so I think that that's kind of the next wave. It has to be more professionals who are trusted voices of authority within their community who are presenting logical reasons that cannabis is objectively less harmful than the vast majority of substances available to us and should be looked at differently than the current system does. I think that's the, that's the, the, like the great thing about it is that you can, you don't have to smoke it either too. Like, right. There right. Are people who choose to smoke and then there's people who choose to eat and there's people. Right. So it's, it's good that you have like all these other options, but I guess the real thing that you're saying is like, you just have to be openly willing to talk about the way you right. use it, that it's incorporated into your life somehow. Mm-hmm. I think also, um, your approaches are going to change over time with your right. kids. Cause like, if my kids were a little bit younger, or if I was one of the mothers that's, you know, using cannabis to deal with postpartum depression, like there's a whole, there's a bunch of years. They don't even know what's going on, you know? And like taking a few puffs is definitely going to make like two hours of Play-Doh way more fun. Um, but then, you know, they enter a phase where they're a little bit older and now, you know, they start to become more aware of like, 
a sense or smells or what's happening. And so then, you know, you need to enter a different time where you're communicating to them differently about it. And then once you get into the double digits, you got to talk to them about what someone on TikTok that you met could bring to your front door or like some, like all of those things, you know, and, and everything that's out there and, and, you know, what's really going on. And all I hope for honestly is that my kids talk to me. I try to just be confident in my decisions about being so open with them in the hope that they're open with me. Um, so that I know, you know, what they want to do and why. Yeah, Mm -hmm. no, that, I mean, that's the, like, I think communication is the the key thing in families, but like just in the industry in general, that's, I totally, totally agree. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about Jane West? So you have this beautiful site. It looks like you're kind of building, building, um, the brand. And so I would love to hear more about, uh, what you're doing with Jane West. I saw the coffee and I'm like, I'm, I'm excited about the coffee. Yeah. So um, every single product made under the Jameless brand is a product that I use on the regular. Um, it's the coffee I can't, as soon as I started consuming CBD coffee, I, I just had a completely different op- opinion about coffee. Like oh, wow. I was reminded of my days in my twenties in New York, where like I was standing there with my three girlfriends and we all had, like a 24 ounce iced coffee in our hand. And we were like, Oh my God, I'm so stressed out. I can't even call like, and it's like, we're drinking so much coffee um, as a country. Um, And as soon as I started consuming CBD coffee, I, I just, I actually ended up consuming less coffee because what would happen is my regular coffee, I always use the same French press in my house my whole life before I even discovered CBD coffee. And I would make two of them every day I'd make one in the morning and, and, and in the afternoon. Um, cause in my previous positions, I also worked, managed those programs and work from home. Um, and so I turned to CBD coffee, I bought like a five pound bag and, um, I realized I didn't want the second one. Like the crash that occurs in your body, um, from the caffeine wearing off, it was something that was pretty defined for me. And then I also became aware that it was making me hungry. Like my coffee consumption was making me more hungry than I actually was. And so I found CBD added to caffeine to, to make my experience more like uplifting and, and satiating. And so I like, didn't really need that last one. And there wasn't really that drop off. And so um, the CBD coffee, actually our CBD coffee is so great. I, the margins on it, it's the lowest margin product I make because it's expensive and really, really good. Um, but I love it and I want my customers to have it. And I really don't think anything goes better with a joint than CBD coffee. Um, so yeah, so that's one of our PCBD products, but what I'm really working on are home goods and accessories. So like, um, when I, I left women grow in 2016, I spent the first year and a half designing a line of dugouts and one hitters that were like my dream because I'm from Wisconsin and I'm like old school cannabis consumer. And I just, I believe in dugouts and single use. That's what I always had. Um, so I designed a line of dugouts and one hitters. Here's one of them. This is the compact. So if you guys are listening, you could uh, head to YouTube to see oh, yes. what she's showing us, but um, yeah, that can you pull it out of there? I will take that. Oh yeah. I'll take it. I'll take that in mind as I describe this, but basically 
black on black. Videos of me using all of these products online. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the goal was to make a a completely compact experience where, you know, in one small box in your purse, you have the lighter you need, a pick to clean out your one hitter, because we all know that if you're smoking on one hitter, you got to clean it out once in a while. Then this is the pipe that has like a perfect bowl size for just like one really perfect green hit and then like one more to clear it. And then we also have a small compartment that holds two different types of flour, one for day and one for night. Um, So this is my dream compact. Um, And so I wanted to make make this a reality. Along the way, I designed the wand, which is also like a more way to like consume on the go that... Whoa, that is so crazy. So yeah, so then the bottom is the filler. Wow. Zap that up. And the best part about this one is that like <laughs> it's like the coolest little gap. The best part about it is like you're you're done, you clean it out, you put the dirty side back on the dirty side. You can like have it back in your purse. And I love that before you even exhale. I love that you've created something for leaf users that's still so clean because that becomes a problem having you know the mess of the leaf. But that was amazing. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I'll have to pull the um the image for for YouTube to show you guys on there. But you can pull one from YouTube too, where I have like hair and makeup on and look good. Um, <laughs> I also love that you created something that is a more moderate amount of use while still being extremely convenient, because then you're not creating this device that just gets you more and more and yes. more. Yes. Yes. Nice, pleasant, even experience. That's so cool. People want. The reason people love flour is because it's the fastest acting form, but I also believe that it is the most reliable. Um, and like, I do have just very varied experiences on, on edibles, whether how much I ate or what I drank or what I feel, or if I have much foods in my stomach, or if I went running that morning, like, but like taking one puff of a flower you love pretty much just delivers. And, and so agreed, the dosing was so critical. We went through like 20 different bowl sizes. I'm such a maniac about bowls. Like it's everything you want a a triangular shaped bowl because you know, you want to taste the flower and you want to taste the cannabis and a circular bowl, which glass wants to be a circle. That's what it wants to do. Um, what it does is leave a small area to chart, to light the weed and all the good stuff down at the bottom. So like for our steamroller, we have a super triangular bowl. And so you like could really easily light each side and every puff will, will lead to like a nice green hit. Um, because I love the taste of cannabis and I want, you know, I want people to be able to have that, but yes, the new next generation, I believe of cannabis consumers absolutely wants measured doses and they want that confidence, especially when you get, you're getting started. Um, I'm always concerned when like, I see new customers come into dispensaries in Colorado where I, where I like mystery shop all the time and they leave with these grand joints. And I'm like, Oh my God, if they smoke that thing, it might be too much for them. Oh, worry. So, you're like, mom mode. <laughs> you're like, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah. Um, so I love my, so dosable forms are in everything I do. So, um, all of our flower products are also in dosable format. So I, so, okay. So I created the dugouts and one headers and, I learned a lot by doing it. 
Um, I learned how to find a designer and have something that's like in your brain become a thing that's in your hand. And then I had to figure out how to raise money to have these products made. And then I had to have the products made. And then I had to import them. And then I had to sell them. So like that was a lot. And I learned a lot. Um, and so in the process, I also wanted to make a glass line and I was like, okay, I cannot be doing all of this at once. Like I have to, <laughs> I have to actually execute on what it is I'm taking on. And so the glassware line was a collab and that reduced uh, the overhead, the capital needs, the logistics, the sales team, a lot of those things for me and, and gave me like all the freedom to make like the bongs that I wanted and the steamrollers that I wanted. Um, and so my first collab was with an Austin based company and it was, I mean, being able to create things as soon as you like get over these hurdles that you believe to be so insurmountable, then so many other things seem easy. And yeah. yeah. And when, um, when you really take a look at, at how I did what I just said about making the brand new product, like almost in almost every time you need to, it's all in chunks. It's, you know, I wasn't doing all that at once. I wasn't trying to export it while I was trying to figure out the packaging. You know, every single one of the things you have to kind of suddenly make your specialty, but then once it's over, you're, it, you're done with that part. You know how that works. So yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and so, yeah, so at, you were saying earlier about keeping it clean and, um, I was just going to say that the number one reason that my first glassware line was these three colors, uh-huh. white and mint and cobalt, okay. is because they're opaque and uh, you they never look dirty <laughs> because they're opaque. So um, it also did make it hard to clean. So there, there's other reasons why transparent glass is useful, but um but our, my first line, I, the bong, I absolutely wanted to be shorter than a wine bottle. So it would like look li- really great on a tablescape and um, have bowl, t- bowl sizes where you could make like a displayer. Like I'm doing something for Willie Nelson's High Holidays in um, next week. They're doing like an entertaining with Jane segment. And so I've put together like different displayers of bowls like you can have at a party so that like one strain would go in one bowl and the other would go in the other color. And then guests know you, they just take one and they have that whole bowl themselves. Yeah. Like Alice in Wonderland. I love it. Take this. Oh, Alice in Wonderland is more like this for the wedding. We did this for a wedding. <laughs> oh, nice. Oh, that's cool. So anyways, um, social use bold displays. These are all the fun things that I wanted to start getting into. Right. Um, uh, but everything I did like fed into each other. Like I didn't realize how, poorly or how limited I didn't realize how limited the options for glass aesthetic were until I tried to go find bongs for the bong bars for my events right couldn't find five bongs that all looked the same that I wanted to put out you know right that's cool that you were able to get into kind of like the design aspect of it And, and also like just the way that it kind of fits like the products you showed us earlier, the first ones that they fit so simply into your life that you knew that it was going to kind of, this is, it would work for a lot of other people. So it's yes. like make what you would use, I guess. Yes, totally. Yeah. Totally. You know, and that goes back what you're saying to, um, I want to, cause I do want to talk about equity crowdfunding before we yeah. go. 
Yes. And um, I can't, you know, I had to raise $1.3 million to from 22 accredited investors in order to bring the, the dugouts and one headers to life and have them manufactured do that on my own. And um, in doing so, um, the conversations I was having with VCs, like they did not necessarily think this thing that you just were like, oh my God, I want that in my purse. They, well, why would we do that? And consumer product goods is so hard. And how are you going to get into the fragmented market system of smoke shops without the, and throughout the U S and like, uh, okay, valid questions, but not a reason not to do what I want to do. Um, and so, um, it was very important to me that my company was all, was also very diversely held. So my company is 80% um, women and minority held. And um, the, and so and building that cap table taught me that like, you will eventually find your people. Eventually you'll find them. And I did. And I totally found all the right people. Every time I like tell them the new stuff we did, they're like, oh my God, that's amazing. I can't believe we did that. And I think about the type of feedback that I would probably be receiving if I had taken other advice or taken other money. And, um, I think it would be really limiting because they, they didn't quite see my vision. And additionally, especially in the cannabis sector, it's not just about vision. It's about like what your North star is like, you're making this up. So, you know, and there's no necessary guidebook. And if someone wants to sell you a guidebook, don't buy it. Uh, and you know, you have to just like do this. And so, um, you have to have people on your side that believe in, in your vision and your North star, not just what you have in your hand right now, because you, the only way you're going to succeed is by like maximizing opportunities as they come that you cannot predict. Yeah. So, yeah. That's so, um, so after raising that money, I did decide like, okay, there has to be another option for this. Well, the best option is to just be like cash flow positive. <laughs> so, um, that's one thing that like is its own challenge in this space. Um, but so I, I turned to equity crowdfunding and, um, I knew about it because it was part of Obama's 2013 jobs act to allow for everyday people to invest in startups the same way that accredited investors do. And if people in the audience don't know, in order to be an accredited investor, you have to just basically already be rich. You have to be making a Yeah. There's a check box and it's like, are you rich? Check this box. (laughs) (laughs) And then you have to, and then you can give me your, then you can give me your money. But if you're not, then it's just assumed that, that you don't have the, uh, you know, ability to properly evaluate an investment on your own. Right. And so, so, um, through the jobs act, a handful of startups started to form platforms for everyday people to invest in companies. And I was one of the first cannabis companies to do an equity crowdfunding campaign in 2013 on the Republic, which is part of the Angelus family of, of, um, of companies. And it was an incredible experience. Um, we've done two rounds since then. My last, my, I, well, I was doing that round and one more, but the last one happened in the middle of COVID and it just felt, it was before cannabis was declared essential. It was in week four of, the, of COVID, but the, it, the campaign started in January of 2020. So I just kind of wrapped it up. Bad timing. Yeah. yeah. So we're finishing that up. We're already waitlisted. We're maxed out on our round. Um, and so as of right now, based on those three different separate rounds, um, I have over 3000 investors from 42 countries and every U S state and territory. Mm-hmm. And, um, most of them, um, when people come and evaluate my company to invest in it, 
they go to the Republic site where they can see my evergreen deal page and learn about every single thing my company does and everything we're going to do. Um, and most people spend on average six to 10 minutes on that page. Um, and so um, equity crowdfunding has provided us the ability to communicate to the world what we're building and how, and all of the new products are bringing to market every year um, with, with just the cost of my time and energy in getting, and, and it is a lot. I mean, these wow. are like, this is, this is SEC documents that are like the one where you're like, wait, is it a hundred? It's really 102 pages, you know? And, and yeah. you put that together. Like it's, it's not like a form. So, um, it's a lot of work, but honestly it required me to have like gap compliant financials and have everything my company is doing be able to be reviewed by a national accounting firm. Um, I use Cohen Resnick. They're amazing. They've completely prepared my company to be able to do bigger rounds and make bigger moves, um, in doing reviews of what, what, what we built and taught me a lot about, you know, improving next for next steps. So um, yeah. And so I just wanted to talk about that on, on the show. So more people knew about it, um, especially because um, when the first equity crowdfunding rules went into place in 2013, you know, these companies started and, and, and since then they've been trying to make some reforms to it and some, and, and to make it more accessible or, or, or something that's more appealing to a wider group of startups and so those laws, that revised set of equity crowdfunding laws just went into place in March of this year. And now you can raise up to $5 million. And previously you can only raise um, 1.07. So um, that's a huge difference. And um, if you- Especially for cannabis, if it's a- Totally. Capital is, the capital need is more. Absolutely. Um, it opens- and, and most of them have a local brand. Yeah. because of the regulatory limitations. So like you're, you can, you can, every customer, if an existing cannabis business wanted to start getting into it, every customer that walked in the door, because they also put into law, into the law, test, newing test the waters is what it's called um, stipulations. So before when I launched, I could not tell anyone what I was doing or even talk about it until it was officially launched. And I had filed my documents with the SEC and now there's new testing the waters laws where you can even like get people to go on a wait list and pledge how much they will give when you open, which all makes perfect sense. Um, but it makes it just like an easier lift for some of these companies. So I hope to see people going that way too. Like we, we have to be in control of our capital and we have to be in control of business decisions and using equity crowdfunding over VC capital is just one of the ways we can do that. Yeah, I think equity crowdfunding is an awesome, awesome solution. I haven't seen, I, I we've been working in with equity crowdfunding for, I don't know, last five, six years. Um, and so we work a lot with like Start Engine and Fundable. Okay. And um, is the one that you are on, um, the crowdfunding platform that you're on, is it specific to cannabis or is it just no. startups? No, actually it's not. Actually, the challenges I've faced um, on that side or because I'm one of the only ones, I think actually cannabis companies will be more likely to be accepted on a crop start engine and we funder. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, but Republic is just really well known for their, 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 their standards and their investment committee yeah. only accepts less than like 3% of the businesses that, that apply. 
Um, and so, um, so I just feel safe and comfortable there. And, and I've, I've been, they've grown their team immensely. And just last week they did one of these coin sales. I'm not yeah. going to say the right words, but they definitely did something last week where they closed $40 million in one day. Wow. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think maybe um it would be worth having a few more conversations about it and maybe pulling together a panel just on talking yeah. about equity crowdfunding because it is something that a, a lot of people like they they hear crowdfunding, they think Kickstarter, they don't really understand the dynamics of yeah. who's an investor, who's not an investor, how much you can invest. Um, and equity crowdfunding really did, you're right, open it up to kind of anyone. But I think it was a little bit more prominent in the tech space than yep. any other industry, even though we saw some automotive, some like, um, we did see, like, I think we saw a few breweries and like wineries, and yep. stuff, but they're early adopters, right? But yeah. it would be great. I think, I mean, this is, it's, it, you had a great idea of doing it um, on equity, an equity crowdfunding platform because um, also the people that look to enter the cannabis space are like, they, they're like, they want to go all in. They want to like, they're passionate about it. They love it. You know, they want to be completely involved. So I think that's a great idea. Thank you. Yeah. And you know, it's every time I go back, like, cause I just went to, you know, look at sites again before I finally put my deal page up to like adjust to like what people are doing or saying. And, and there's even more, there's films, there's several films that are, which is like, okay, duh, that sounds great. You're, you're promoting everything you're doing. Um, and there's even some real estate properties, which are interesting with like this new Airbnb world we live in. So I think people are really starting to get to it. The other interesting thing is it's equity crowdfunding exists in like 20 other countries too. So I think as people start to really look at it more, it, it just was, we were, and we're actually late adopters uh, globally. So, and everything that's happened in this past year with, I, I don't own stocks. I don't like play that game and do that stuff. And I'm not a wealthy person, but everything that's happened in the past year with Robinhood and Reddit and all the things, like all it's done in my mind. I mean, to me, it's a green light of what I'm doing that like control this, invest in the companies you love, put your money, you know, behind things you're passionate about. And equity crowdfunding just enables people to do that. Like I'm one of the only companies that takes only 20, as little as $25. That's like the federal little minimum. Yeah, it's yeah. the minimum. I think most of them, I would say most of them are about like a hundred. Yes. 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 Because logically, um, the, the amount of like paperwork and emails and stuff you got to do, like, is it worth it for 25? But, but $25 is the number one. I wish I had the data. I haven't pulled that point in a while. It's the number one investor number of mine. But it's also like just a great way to build the community. So we we work in equity crowdfunding. So if, if anybody has any questions, yes. uh, feel free to shoot us an email or check out our website. Uh, our PR agency is greenseedpr.com. But I think um, there's a lot of reason you would go with equity. Um, and I, I think one is because of the current challenges and limitations on um, funding and banking and obviously those things will get better, but who knows when. So if you want to raise money now, that's a great way of doing it. And it's also an amazing way to build and nurture a community. So I think kind of, um, I just, yeah, I love crowdfunding. I've been doing it for a while. So like, I feel like, um, this is kind of, I think the first conversation that's it's come up in, and I'm so like excited to hear that you were doing it. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it with you more in the future. Cause I really, I really do want to educate the masses. Yeah. 
Awesome. Well, I think we're running out of time here. I'm, gonna wrap <laughs> it up. Been, I'm getting the, I'm getting the, the signs of here. But um, thank you so much for yes, your time. wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. I mean, I think what you're doing is really cool. And I, it's, it's so cool because like it, the way you're doing it is that you're rolling with the punches and kind of starting these little pockets of projects that seem to be um, really pushing things forward. So it's, it looks fantastic. You're doing a great job. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Awesome. And thank you guys so much for having me. I've listened to uh, your others leading in this series and everything you're doing in the, on the PR side, you're definitely experts in this. So I love having you apply that to the green room. Great. Great. Thank you so much. All right. Well, we will make sure to follow up with you. Um, I think we're put together a panel on crowdfunding. Yeah. I've got the can of box guys. So I did it. And then I did a can of box, you know, subscription box. Uh-huh. Um, and Anthony's campaign uh, just is just closed or it's going to close in a couple of days. So Very he's a perfect candidate because he's total ancillary. Okay. That's perfect. Awesome. Perfect. Yeah. Let's do it. Cool. All right. Well, we will see you later and awesome. thanks again. Yes. Thank you. Bye. And hold on one second. Don't oh, move. Yeah, it was. I'm leaving. Were you talking to Sheldon? No, 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 no. no. You, you stay you, on. You, you stay. <laughs> well, we kind of like we kind of you know end it to. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, but thank you so much. Really, um, I think. Um, yeah, I don't know why. I, you're right. I haven't seen a lot of crowdfunding campaigns in the cannabis space. It's, it's because of the. I mean, I didn't want to get into it because it's boring. And if we can get into it, if you want to, but it's because of the things that you. And this is why a panel would be really good. Like there's definitely a scale of easy to hard and the closer you get to the plant, the harder it is. And so I have to prove, and what my form C states is that all I do is sell child resistant packaging. And that's true. Like I just sell people this box and that's true. And they buy it for me, but they're the only people that buy it for me. And then they put the weed that I want and then they sell it. So um, I'm pretty close to being like, and every time there's a whole new issue, like last time it was escrow, they like wouldn't give me the money and everyone's just like, sorry. And they can't even advertise for me. So the other women on Republic get like, oh, this is this woman and what she does. And here's her puppy company. And I, they just like put my picture up and be like, invest in women. Cause they can't say anything else where even Republic's ads get crunched. Yeah. It's yeah. so juicy, but you'd have to have, we have to have your audience like really want to get into the nitty gritty. Yeah, but, yeah. Well, that's why you don't see that many episode. that's another that's a good episode i think well yeah what me... what cookie well okay one last thing well you probably have more things to record cookies and i are proving that you can do it because we're just brands yeah like and and cookies is excluded by just selling people empty packaging yeah. so as long as you start a weed company and then you start another entity and that entity is the merch entity of the brand that's how i think you could we can like crush it for an actual weed company Oh, I see. Yeah. So you have to kind of, it's get a little game. It's all like anything that you're selling that's in it, but you're not selling the thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyways. All right. You guys have more to do. Thank yeah. you for having me. We'll talk to you soon and I'll follow up with you in a couple of weeks, probably next week. Cause, um, this is probably going to be, uh, come out in June. So okay, great. Um, we'll send Perfect. you the feeds and all that kind of stuff. Sounds great. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. The Green Room Podcast is brought to life by Green Seed PR, a cannabis green tech-focused PR agency and a dedicated production team of editors, mixers, and showbookers. A huge thank you to the Vessel team for providing their studio for our recordings. Don't forget to subscribe and share the Green Room Podcast with friends, colleagues, and family. 
That way you'll never miss an episode and we can keep the lights on. If you're feeling extra generous, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast listening platform. You can also find us on Instagram at GreenseedPR and see the live video versions of all of our podcasts on YouTube. Would you like to be on the guest on the show or do you have a great guest referral? Awesome. Submit your guests at greenseedpr.com slash the hyphen green hyphen room. Thanks for listening and be well.